Hi everyone, I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the global investment and merchant bank. Listen in as Take-Two Interactive Chairman and CEO Strauss Zelnick goes deep with Lion Tree's Managing Director, Nick Tuosto. Their discussion veers from personal inspiration to business philosophy and even the role of blockchain in the gaming industry going forward. Tune in for a very revealing conversation. Enjoy. Thank you, Strauss, for joining us here in Deer Valley, Utah. My pleasure. I'm excited to ask a host of questions across different dimensions of your life. I want to start on the personal front. So I've known you for a good long while now, and what strikes me most about you is just this intense motivation across your personal fitness, across your professional capacities. What drives you? Well, it's tempting to pick some high-minded adjectives. I was just talking to Andrew Sorkin as we finished the conversation earlier, and he said, um, were you ever driven by insecurity? And the answer was, yes, absolutely. I had a very tragic and difficult childhood. I thought that if I were successful enough in every possible way, then bad things would never happen to me again. And that initially was my motivation. I think the good news is that that stopped being most of my motivation some time ago. And of course, it's easier to realize your ambitions when you're focused on other people, not what's inside of you. But initially, probably came from a relatively dark place. And more recently, within the last couple decades, it's come from a more positive place. And in terms of your different professional capacities, so you have your family office, obviously you're the CEO of Take-Two Interactive, and then you also have ZMC, a private equity fund that you run. How do you balance your time among the, the three? Well, I really like what I do. I'm a person who likes doing different things at any given time. So I had a double major in college. I went to two graduate schools simultaneously, and I've been running multi-divisional companies ever since I started running businesses, which was three years out of school. And in many instances, I had to be the division head along with the CEO of the company overall. So I'm accustomed to doing a bunch of different things at any given time. And I actually think about my best when I have a diverse array of challenges facing me. I'm not very good if I have to deal with a singular issue by itself and nothing else for long periods of time. I'm also one of those people, and it can come across as a humble brag, but it really isn't. I'm really good when I have a lot on my plate. I'm not very good when I have very little on my plate. I hate to use the word, but it's true. When I don't have enough going on, I'm sort of lazy. And it's the only time in my life when I can procrastinate. If I have like one or two things that have to get done, I can put them off. If I have 10 things to get done, I dive in and do them. I guess the pressure of feeling like, wow, there is a lot to do. I better do it. So having to oversee three enterprises actually is more interesting and more compelling to me than overseeing only one. In terms of the time commitment, I really believe in delegation with information. I'm not at all a believer in the kind of delegation that leads to phrases like, just do it. I don't want to know how. I always want to know how, and I want to make sure that how we do things is consistent with our strategy and our culture. However, I'm blessed to have more than 10,000 colleagues across all of the enterprises I oversee, and they're really, really talented, and, and they do a great deal of the work. And how do you define success in each of those three capacities? What does success look like for you? Well, professional success is pretty easy to define. We're dealing with for-profit enterprises, and so you would define success traditionally as in terms of growth and creation of value for all of the constituents, which includes 
emphatically the customers of the enterprises, your primary constituent, if you don't create value for them, which is to say, provide a good or service at a value that's greater than what you charge for it. If you don't start there, you, you have no reason to be in business. If you don't provide value for your colleagues who actually serve your customers, they won't be around to provide those services. You must serve them. And then ultimately, you need to create a return on capital for the, the people who invest it. That, to me, is the definition of value. It's not as simple as creating shareholder value. You have to create value across the entire ecosystem to have a sustainable enterprise that can grow and function. Also, approaching business that way has the added benefit of feeling good because you feel like you're trying to do the right thing for everyone who's involved. Of course, you fall short sometimes. Additionally, how do I define success? Making a difference in people's lives. Again, that could be the customers, that can be the colleagues, that can be the people who invest, and trying to do good things in a good way. What does the next 10 years look like if you were to try to forecast your career of the next 10? Well, I'm not sure I know what it looks like. I think I have a point of view of what I would like it to look like, and we've talked about this a lot. I'm a big believer that Success feels different for everyone. The traditional ideas of success don't fit most people. The American dream doesn't fit most people. Everyone has a different idea of what his or her success should look like. And I'm a big believer that the, one of the factors most highly correlated with getting what you want is knowing what you want. So for my life, I've always been pretty good at looking ahead 5, 10, 15, 20 years and saying, what is it that I want personally and professionally during that period of time? Then I will establish a goal set, usually pretty ambitious, and try to work toward it. And what I found is the more ambitious the goal, the less likely I'll actually achieve it. However, by owning what I want, I'm moving in the right direction. And generally speaking, I figure I'll get closer to the goal for wanting it and working towards it than if I hadn't bothered to spend time thinking about it at all. For a lot of people, and I will answer your question, I promise. For a lot of people, it's terrifying to establish that because you actually have to choose. My view is, sure, choose, then write it down in your device that you carry around with you every day. And it's your goal for 10 years from now or 20 years from now or five years from now. You can always change it. You're not beholden to anyone else. But an unwillingness to own the ambition pretty much guarantees that you're going to meander. You're going to be pulled in different directions by serendipitous events or things that look attractive in the moment. So for me, in the next 10 years, set out, I actually wrote down these goals very much, probably not quite 10 years, maybe a little bit less, for all three enterprises and each have their own goals. But generally speaking, it was to double the scale or more of each of the enterprises I oversee. Now with the Zynga transaction that's contemplated for take two, we're kind of ticking that box <laughs> a little more quickly than I expected. But that just gives us another base to grow from. I'll be interested to get an update on the next iteration of the goals for Take-Two. But I think for our listeners, it'd be helpful just and actually really interesting to hear how you became the CEO of Take-Two. Well, it was not a, a standard path. What brought me to the video game business was I grew up in the entertainment business and uh, I was running a movie studio. My ambition had always been to run a movie studio. I was thinking about what came next and I, I'm a student of the entertainment and media businesses. I always have been. And I don't engage in denial. So I understood that the movie business, having run two studios over a seven-year period, was actually a pretty terrible business and was unlikely to get better anytime soon. And you know, any given career is unlikely to be better than the business in which it exists. 
the business is the limiting factor and you can't really change that. You can change who you are within it. You can work really hard, but you're going to bump up against the limitations of the business. And I decided I didn't want my career to be capped by the nature of the motion picture business. I also had an entrepreneurial bent and the motion picture business was a mature industry and I was not going to start and own a movie company, in my opinion. So I started thinking about a couple things. Well, if I were going to be entrepreneurial, I had to pick a powerful business that I thought would grow. And I also wanted to be in the entertainment business. So I actually asked myself, okay, let's pretend, and this was in the 90s, the early 90s. I'm aging myself, but those are the facts. Let's pretend this is the 1920s and we're at the dawn of the modern motion picture business with sound and color coming. What is the analogy of that today? And I thought, what's the video game business? It's been around long enough that we know it's real, but it's really small and it's changing rapidly. I was invited to become CEO of a startup video game company called Crystal Dynamics. And I moved to Silicon Valley. You're looking at the only person who's ever resigned without getting paid from being president of a major film studio. Sold my house at a huge loss and moved my young family to Palo Alto, where um, I grew Crystal Dynamics. I was then recruited away to turn around a big record company, and they wanted me to push the company into other areas. And I said, well, let's go into the video game business. And we built what became BMG Interactive. Just before we released our first release, the leadership at Bertelsmann, the parent company for BMG, insisted that we divest BMG Interactive, which we thought was just a terrible idea. We had some confidence in our upcoming releases. We built an infrastructure. We'd invested in product, but nonetheless, we did that. And we sold BMG Interactive for, I think, $14 million to a little public company in the video game business called Take-Two Interactive. And Take-Two Interactive released the first property that we sold them, which was Grand Theft Auto. Okay, roll the clock forward. My partners and I start ZMC in 01. We're doing deals in, in an array of different areas of the media and entertainment business. It's 2007. Take-Two Interactive has grown. It is a very troubled company, a $700 million market cap, about $700 million in net revenue, losing a great deal of money in any year that they didn't release Grand Theft Auto under investigation by the IRS, the SEC, and the New York DA's office. So company had won the trifecta of government investigations. <laughs> uh, they hadn't filed their financial statements. They hadn't had an annual meeting. And we thought it was a pretty interesting opportunity. So we um, assembled the shareholders and took over the company in, I want to say, April of 07. We set about to make sure the company was compliant and honest, honorable, highly creative, innovative, and efficient diversify the product line, cut the costs. That's how Zelnick Media took over Take-Two Interactive. Now, how I became the CEO is a little bit of a different story. I started as executive chairman. Ben Federer was the CEO. Ben then left in 2011, and I became the CEO. Fascinating. It's a unique story. I don't think I've heard one even close to that. It's given you, I think, a pretty interesting vantage point, having history in media, in both music and film. Now, as we see these worlds colliding more and more video games like The Witcher showing up on Netflix, it used to be that there were very few examples of successful activations of video game IP and other forms of media. And today, I think that's changing. But I'm curious to see your perspective on that as someone with history in all three capacities. There's no reason that video game intellectual property couldn't be well expressed in linear entertainment. It's all a matter of the quality of the project. And of course, the underlying IP. We have Borderlands coming to motion picture screens 
near you. So we're really excited about it. It's not a big economic opportunity because unless you're going to invest in the project yourself so that you actually have a piece of the upside, you're really just generating licensing fees. And while they can be quite substantial for a company of our scale, they're not really meaningful. I do see, though, that sometimes there are activations that build real IP value. Like if I think about going the other direction, the Pokemon company licensing its IP for Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go has now reached a billion devices. It has turned fans out of regular people like myself. I play with my son. Saturdays, community days are a fun way for us to get out and walk around. I think that's made every other dimension of Pokemon more valuable. Cards, movies, TV shows across the board. Is it possible that activations like a Borderlands movie could broaden the top of the funnel? A lot more people aware of the IP go buy the video games where you make the bulk of the economic profit? Possibly. That was always the view. Pokemon's really an outlier. In the same way that some Disney properties that cross media are outliers, it would be great if a hit movie actually brought a broader audience into interactive entertainment expressions of a title. I'm not sure that would happen, and Borderlands is already a huge hit. Well, I think the biggest opportunity and most tangible is mobile in terms of broadening the top of the funnel. Obviously, a central thrust behind the Zynga deal, but I think it'd be interesting just to talk about how the Zynga deal came to be. Take-Two has been historically underrepresented in the mobile market. Partially, that was because we were late to the party. We've good excuses for being late to the party. We were very focused on a turnaround, and we didn't have a lot of excess capital when the mobile business came along. Equally, it really wasn't a sufficient area of focus for me. And it became obvious about five years ago that this was a rapidly growing market, that it had a different demographic than our core demographic. And that it wasn't going away. It was going to continue to grow. And of course, mobile is now the fastest growing part of the interactive entertainment business. And the demographic is skews female and skews older, which is great because while Take-Two's demographics are more balanced than one might think, we do skew male and skew a bit younger. So we wanted to be more exposed to mobile and we felt we had to acquire our way in. We actually acquired three companies, starting with Social Point, than Playdots and most recently Nordius. But our desire, as I told you, was to double the scale of the company in really five years. And I think I, I stated that goal internally a couple of years ago. And we knew that to do that, we would have to do a transformative combination or acquisition that organic growth alone wouldn't get us there, even though our story is one of organic growth. So we looked around and said, wow, let's look at companies that might fit well in our ecosystem in terms of the products, ownership of intellectual property and the culture of the team. And you know this well because you and Liontree advised us on the Zynga transaction and on numerous other transactions that we didn't close. And thank you. <laughs> I've said this privately and also publicly. You, Nick, are great at actually giving real advice. So you weren't in search of a transaction leading to a fee. You were in search of doing the right thing for the company you were advising us in this case. That's why it was so immensely helpful. And I think we went through, you'll recall, a really pretty intellectual exercise about looking for enterprises that would be a good fit with Take-Two and also would create value, not just financial value, creative value, value for our customers, value for our colleagues, and cultural value. So we established that Zynga could be a good fit, and we started having very casual conversations with Zynga's leadership, Frank Chabot, years ago. And we're friendly people, and we're positive people, and in those conversations, we indicated that if there were anything to be done, we'd be happy to have that conversation. If not, we'd go away and leave the company alone. 
And relatively recently, within the last few months, as you know, an opportunity presented itself and we were able to agree upon a business combination that with any luck should close in the next couple of months. Well, it's incredibly kind of you to say, and thank you from all of us at LionTree. The partnership has been one that we cherish. It is really interesting in terms of the market dynamics to see the Activision Blizzard acquisition by Microsoft announced a week after the Zynga deal. What do you make of all this consolidation and implications for the industry generally? Well, I've been predicting consolidation for like 10 years. So just proving that if you wait around long enough, even someone who's often wrong can occasionally be right. Um, <laughs> as entertainment businesses mature, they do tend to consolidate down to five or six at most powerful content creators. It's been true in music. We're really talking about three or a few more motion pictures, television and the like. Although television is a bit of an outlier because of this explosion in content creation to drive streaming services. But interactive entertainment has matured. It's not fully mature. It's still a rapidly growing business. It's changing and evolving. So I wouldn't expect it to mature in the way that motion pictures, for example, have become mature 30, 40 years ago anytime soon. However, it is a more mature business. And in those instances, successful companies have the capital resources and access to capital that will allow them to pursue inorganic growth. Less successful companies may be in a position where they're seeking a transaction. In the case of Take-Two and Zynga, the first part of the statement was true. We are successful. We have a very solid P&L. We have a very solid balance sheet. Second part, not true. Zynga's not a company that was troubled at all. Zynga also is a growth business. There seemed to be an opportunity where both companies believed that together we'd be more powerful than either of us would be separate. That's one way that businesses combine. I think a really powerful way that they combine. There are other ways that businesses combine. And in the case of Microsoft and Activision, Microsoft is uniquely positioned in that it has a need for really high quality interactive entertainment content to build up its network. Its desired goal in interactive entertainment is to provide a robust cross-platform network for consumers. And Microsoft also had the balance sheet to make an all-cash transaction at a significant premium possible. I have no insight into what went on at the board level of Activision, but my view is it's very hard to resist an all-cash offer at a significant premium. We're all here for our shareholders. In terms of Take-Two and the differentiation in terms of culture, I really think Take-Two stands apart in its commitment to creative independence and autonomy at the studio level. Is that by design? How did that come to be in terms of the way that the studios operate within the Take-Two Federation? It's absolutely by design. Our strategy, and I alluded to this moments ago, is to be the most creative the most innovative and the most efficient company in the entertainment business. And if you want to be the most creative, you have to have the best talent in the business working within your system. And my view is that, first of all, talent does not love big corporate enterprises. If my creative colleagues were in the room and I weren't in the room and you asked them what it's like to work at Take-Two, and I think Take-Two is an amazing place. Most people think so and we're rated very highly. I think they'd say, well, you know, it's a big company and big companies have their challenges. But if I had to work at a big company, this is the one I'd work at. And I think that's a win and I'm proud of that. So what makes us the great place to work at and what on an ongoing basis will make us a great place to work for creative folks and other folks? And the answer is being able to pursue your passions. And we not only allow people to pursue their passion, we insist that they pursue their passion because we believe that that's consistent with creating both art and commercial success. And that's been true in my career in every entertainment business I've been in. And I've been fortunate to run entertainment companies in every part of the entertainment ecosystem, bar none. And 
with great results across the board. So I've looked at that track record and said, I don't create any of it. I never have. So what's consistent? What's consistent is that our team values creativity first and foremost, and that we provide the balance sheet, the support, marketing and distribution and cultural attributes that enable creative folks to do their very best work with as little interference as possible. That works. So when something works, my view is keep doing it. And it seems as though that's what you've done. In contrast to some of your peers that have focused on more cost reductions, you guys have invested very significantly in growing your developer headcount. I think it's up at least 2x over the last four years. Is that something you expect to continue, that investment around the people creating content? To the extent that the market will bear that, absolutely. We are now at scale at Take-Two, and we are continuing to grow. However, we have the ability to produce this very ambitious schedule that we're now creating and bringing to market over the next several years. I do expect, because it's a growth industry, and I think we can disproportionately succeed if we keep doing what we do well, that there'll be an opportunity for continued growth. It may not be at the same rate. I don't mean economic growth. The growth in uh, headcount may not be at the same rate. Hmm. I hope not. So part of the CEO's job is, of course, making capital allocation decisions. So how do you balance the investment decisions and capital allocation between investing more behind some of your biggest franchises, which are some of the biggest franchises in the entertainment world. The brands like Grand Theft Auto sold 370 million units life to date. That is unparalleled versus investing in some of the more independent-minded new projects, private division, for example. The answer is all of the above. It's tempting only to focus on your huge hit franchises because the risk profile of the new iteration is lower than for new intellectual property, almost certainly. However, if you're not creating new hits, ultimately you're burning the furniture. Shifting gears a bit, I'm curious about your perspective on this emerging phenomenon in blockchain in that games can be integrated with either NFTs or blockchain tokens. How do you think about blockchain's role in gaming? It's early still, and I think there's a great opportunity over time. It's hard to know exactly how it'll be expressed. Right now, there's an intersection of technology and a speculation, and we're not interested in engaging in speculation because we know that ends badly for at least some of our consumers, and we don't want any experience to end badly. Also, we're an entertainment company. We're not a gambling business. We're not a lottery business. So the expression of technologies that's used to create lotteries or gambling, that's not appealing to us. However, the notion of making a digital collectible, a persistent digital object, this is very exciting, both to us and potentially to consumers. My last question is uh, a radical shift in gears, <laughs> your fitness regimen. You're known to be the fittest CEO in America. That's nice of you to say, or anyone else to say. I've seen it firsthand. It's actually true. And I think you're actually fitter today than we first began working out years ago. How do you do this? I just keep trying. The truth is it's commitment, but it's commitment that I love. I'm always allergic to people saying, well, you know, you just have to dig deeper and be resilient. Anytime people have conversations like this and you're reading about them, you usually read about some person who says, you know, well, I get up at, you know, 3.30 in the morning and then I train for four hours, you know, and I have a, four blueberries and then I hang out with my family for three hours. And then I read spiritual text. Then I help homeless children. And then I roll into the office around 11.30, work for an hour and a half, create massive amounts of value across the 17 enterprises that I run. And then I go out of a run and then stay up all night partying with my friends. The punchline is I'm incredibly awesome and you can never possibly be as awesome unless you're just so incredibly disciplined the way I am. And of course you won't be. So I don't like any of that. I don't like any part of that. None of that describes me. 
I think that we don't have the ability to be all things to all people at all times, and you have to choose. I mean, you have to set priorities. And I think my friend Kevin Ryan says you can have three or four priorities at any given time. I stretch it to four. So mine are my family and my friends, my work, mentoring and charitable work, and fitness. Those are my priorities. And that means there are lots of other things that I like to do that don't enter that list. So I read a lot, and actually I've been reading a lot more, but I wouldn't say I read as much as I would like. I really like watching movies. I don't see as many movies as I would like because I have to choose. And fitness is one of my choices. Also, I like the attributes of my fitness life that enhance other parts of my life. So mentoring and coaching is, as I just said, one of my key priorities. And I work out with a lot of people that I coach. That makes the interactions more fun and for everyone involved. I set up my fitness life so that it forms a part of my social life. I don't ever train alone. I always train with other people, as you know. And then I make other choices that are consistent with being fit. So for example, I don't bring a digital device into the gym with me. I think that sounds like a recipe for a very happy life. With that, that concludes the podcast. Thank you so much, Strauss, for being with us. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. Thank you.